So as you can see on the screen, we uh, are talking about walking in the Spirit. We started into the discussion last week, um, and, but we spent, I think, most of our time talking about uh, the nature of the flesh, the, the sin nature, that we're broken, that we've inherited it from Adam, and uh, it continues to give us trouble. How many of you guys have noticed that? Yeah, it does. And uh, it's going to give us trouble until we stand before the Lord face to face. And then we will be purged of the sin nature, and that will transform many, many things. So relationships, worship, life in general. So it'll be sweet. But uh, it's the discussion of walking in the spirit that we want to tackle this morning um, and uh, how it is that we can walk in the spirit. Uh, Why is it that we can walk in the spirit? And uh, so we really want to get down to the fundamentals. That's really the goal this morning. And uh, for anybody that has been regenerate by the Holy Spirit, that is born again, born of the Spirit, whichever uh, term you like, um, the Spirit of God has taken residence in you. And because he is in you, uh, he can rule over you. He can lead you. And... um, So, that's it. Paul said it this way, as we looked at last week. He said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. So the lust of the flesh is the ungodly desires of our sin nature, its passions. Now, I think what's important to point out here is this. If walking in the Spirit can secure the the results that are promised here, then walking in the Spirit is a must for us. Is it not? It is. And every believer, every true believer, wants that. What, I mean, what true believer would not want to be governed by the Spirit so that we would not be subject to the lust of our flesh? The, The very thing that breaks down relationships, the very thing that keeps us from being close to God, uh, the problem, okay? And uh, we want that. But as we mentioned last week, in this particular passage, uh, Paul, he commands us to walk in the Spirit. This is, this is a command in the Greek. It's an imperative. And he gives us this beautiful guarantee if we walk in the Spirit, but he doesn't exactly tell us how to walk in the Spirit. He doesn't tell us how. Uh, did you notice that when you were reading it? Uh, when I read the Scriptures... Uh, especially when I'm reading through the, the larger theological section of Scripture, my mind is always grasp, reaching for how. How? I see all these facts. I hear what you're saying, but how do I do this? How is this tangible for me as a person? And so when I read Galatians 5.16, I go, that's great news, but how do I do it? And Paul doesn't say how to do it. Okay? And uh, so... Uh, why would he omit such an important detail? Now, the reason probably is, is because Paul had spent so much time in the region of Galatia during his first and second missionary journey that that instruction was probably a part of that original instruction. And so repeating it here in the letter was not his main objective. You get it, right? Yeah? But the problem is it kind of leaves us out. And so last week I mentioned that Paul had not spent any time with the church in Rome. And that's to our advantage. Okay? He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted, as he says, to bear fruit among the Gentiles. 
But he wasn't sure, he wasn't quite sure if he could get there. And so what he did was he wrote them the most comprehensive and systematic explanation of the Christian faith. That's what he did. And that's why so many Christians love the book of Romans, because he begins with a premise, and it's, it's just very systematic all the way to the end to his conclusion. It's easy to follow, and uh, it's great. So it's, it's there in Romans 6 through 8 that Paul instructs that particular church about life in the Spirit. So that's what I'd like to do this morning. Uh, not all three chapters, we can't do all three, uh, but I would like to get into chapter 6 for today and see what Paul has uh, to say there. Uh, but what I'd like to do first, before we do that, I wanted to look at what Paul had briefly mentioned in passing uh, in verse 5 of Galatians 5. And it's, it's regarding this whole subject. And here it is on the screen. Paul says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. How? By faith. Okay, by faith. So here in verse 5, Paul attributes righteousness to the work of the Spirit. He doesn't attribute it to you or to me. It's something that the Spirit does in us. Okay? And then in verse 16, as we read a minute ago, he attributes our abstinence, our ability to abstain, uh, to avoid the lust of the flesh as a work of the Spirit. It's not something that we can do. It's only something that he can do through us. Okay? Now, the two are essentially the same, but they're stated in two different ways. Okay, righteousness, we could say, is the absence of sin, and the absence of sin is righteous. Don't you think? Now, there are some uh, theologians that cut hairs and say, no, um, that is a position called innocence. Innocence. Now, I disagree with the position. I have my reasons from Romans chapter 4. Uh, Paul equates this position here as righteousness. So I'm going to lean with Paul. Is that okay? Okay. So if you had no sin in the absolute sense, we would probably consider you righteous, wouldn't we? I think we would. And if you were righteous in the absolute sense, we would say that you had no sin. Amen? How many would like that? I'd like that position very much. Okay, I'm glad I do legally before God the Father. That's the doctrine of justification. We're not talking about that. We're talking about our lives practically, practically, okay? So between the two, Galatians 5.5, 5, Galatians 5.16, Paul's essentially talking about the same thing as it is secured by the same person. That's the Holy Spirit. But here in verse 5, Paul adds the element of faith, the element of faith. He says that these results, both righteousness and the abstinence from sin, he says, come by faith. So our relationship with the Holy Spirit, by which he produces righteousness in our lives, is a relationship of faith. But I'm afraid that um, as biblical concepts kind of fade in our culture, the faith becomes kind of obscure for many people. Faith. So I want to just look at it briefly. We have to understand that biblical faith is not simply believing that God exists. Biblical faith is not simply believing that God exists. That kind of faith just embraces reality. God does exist, right? Okay, so, so you're just accepting reality. Just like when you throw a ball in the air, what goes up must come down. You believe that, right? Okay, that's accepting reality. That's not what biblical faith is. Okay, the, the existence of God 
is something that all people know intuitively. Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Okay? Even an atheist believes in God. What we used to say in combat arms was that in the foxhole, there are no atheists. Okay? Uh, people become believers very fast uh, when their mortality is, is in front of them. All right? So that kind of faith doesn't save and it doesn't benefit, benefit us in this context of sanctification. In trying to become righteous, we can't just have like a passive faith, just believing, okay? Biblical faith is not so much believing, but it's trusting. It's trusting. It's trusting in the God that we believe in, okay? What he has done for us through Christ in securing our salvation and what he currently wants to do, what he's desiring to do by his spirit as the believer is relying upon him. That's what we're looking at right now. So here in the context, the Holy Spirit is working in us to make us righteous in part, as we've said, by delivering us from the lust of our flesh and the other part by making us more like Jesus. But the Holy Spirit only performs this ministry as we trust him, as we trust him. So biblical faith is not simply acknowledging God, but trusting him, relying upon him. And as we look in the scriptures, we learn that not only is he dependable and that we should depend on him, but we have to. We should depend on him. It's a moral obligation. Okay, he's good for his promises. So let me restate what I said a moment ago, but I want to state it differently. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit, by which he produces righteousness in us, is a relationship of dependence a relationship of dependence. And any time for myself, and I think for most men, when we have to face being dependent on something or someone, how, we, how well does that go? So this kind of reliance is going to require humility. Okay, humility. Not that the ladies have no pride. We've met you. Okay, you struggle too. But dependence, depending on him, learning how to depend on him. Yeah. Without that, we will never enjoy his benefits, whether it's for salvation or for sanctification. Okay? But there are some foundational things to all of this that Paul, he doesn't mention here, that he mentions to the Romans, remembering that he, he didn't know if he would go there, but he wanted to give them a full description of the gospel. Okay? And he believed that some of these fundamentals um, were essential to walking in the Spirit. And that, that takes us to Romans 6 through 8. Now, beginning in Romans 6, what Paul is doing is he's, he's covering what we might say are all the facts of redemption as far as what has happened to the believer, what has happened to us when we trusted Christ and for salvation. And what has happened to us at that point then makes all of the other things possible in, as regard, in regard to following the Spirit, to following his lead. So, Let's talk about it. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. If, if it's too long for you to stand, uh, go ahead and sit down whenever you like, okay? All right. Paul says, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or... Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through 
baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it's possible, um, as it was for me, uh, for many years into my faith, not really understanding what had happened to me. I was experiencing some of those things, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand what Paul is saying here and how helpful it's been to know what has happened and to know what is possible because of it. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, from your word, Lord, you would teach us, help us to understand, and then help us to live, Lord, accordingly. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So the chapter uh, has a nice outline to it. It's easy to follow. And you might have uh, saw as we were reading there that Paul uses the word know or to know or do you not know uh, a few times uh, in this section. So in verse 1 through 10, Paul, he wants us to know the facts of redemption. He's insistent that we, we know them. And then once we know the facts, he wants us to reckon or consider them to be true of us. They're true of us, okay? And then his exhortation in verse 12 through 13 is now I want you to live according to the facts that I've given you, the facts of redemption, okay? Now, the plan this morning is to teach through the section more as a survey. I don't want to do verse by verse because then I would only want to do like three verses. But we got to eventually get back to Galatians. Uh, but I don't want to miss what Paul has to say. So we're going to hit all of the highlights, Paul's theology here, and the implications of it for us. And, uh, and then what we'll do is we'll follow Paul into Romans 7 and 8 and let him unpack all of these truths for us. Okay, and hopefully that if you have any, uh, if you're like me, uh, I was a little dim when it came to uh, some of the theological truths regarding us. And uh, just knowing the word is so helpful and it frees you to follow it and live according to it. So hopefully this is helpful to you as it has been for me. Return to verse one. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now all this is in the present tense. So Paul is talking about continuing in a lifestyle of sin. It's not 
you know, you slip up and you sin from time to time. How many of you guys do that? What? Okay. All right. All the time. Uh, Paul is talking about someone who is committed to a lifestyle, a lifestyle, a habitual sin in their life. Uh, and when Paul says, like, you know, no fornicator, no homosexual, no sodomite, and he gives that list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's also talking about those who live in these uh, sins as a lifestyle without repentance. Uh, that's, the, that's the problem. Uh, you're going to fall into sin. You're going to mess up. Uh, your wife knows that. Your children know that. Your husband knows that. Your coworkers, friends, family, everybody. It's just a part of the sad reality of our makeup. But living in a lifestyle of sin, that's when we run into a problem. So somebody asks, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So what had happened prior to this, in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul said that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Chapter 5 is the much more chapter of the Bible. He keeps saying that. He says, well, in Adam, all these bad things happen, but much more the love of God, much more the grace of God supersedes all of those things. Okay? It supersedes. And so here in, in, in Romans 6, Paul, what he's doing is he's anticipating a question that people have asked him before. I've, I've listened to your theology of grace alone by faith alone, Paul, that we're not under the law, but we're free from the law and so forth. And so Paul is anticipating this. It's a question that could be asked this way. If God always distributes enough grace to cover my sin, then why not live how I want and just keep on sinning? How many of you guys have heard that? When I share the gospel with various cults, like those in Mormonism, this is always thrown back in my face. So what you're saying is, no, that's not what I'm saying. And therefore, I can bring them to Galatia, or Romans chapter 6, and then, you know, it's, it's painful to them, but drag them through Paul's theology so they're forced to come to his conclusions, okay? Yeah, Paul, he also warned against this when we were in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, when he said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. You're not free to sin, as we talked about. Amen? We're not free to sin. We're free to live righteously. So anyway, many people, after hearing Paul's theology, especially the, the Judaizers, they concluded, hey, we've been set free from the law. We, we have God's superabounding grace to cover all of our sin. And so we can sin like the devil, and God's grace will dismiss it. And they would throw that in Paul's face and uh, try to make his confession a sham. Okay? Well, first, uh, that is not the conclusion of Paul's theology. That's a misunderstanding of it. And those who embrace that, the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, those that embrace that, they will be lost forever. They will be, okay? Because the habitual lifestyle of sin is one of the great evidences that someone is not saved. If someone lives in unrepentance, well, that means they haven't repented, right? Yeah. So this, this lifestyle, this commitment to sin, and this ignoring of God, that's, that's saying something. Uh, we say, well, we'll know them by their fruit. And that's not the fruit of the Spirit, that's the fruit of what? The sin nature. And Paul had much to say that in the rest of chapter 5 of Galatians. So to this idea, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, uh, Paul responds in verse 2. He says, certainly not. Certainly not. 
how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's saying, how is it possible to continue in a lifestyle of sin if you've died to sin? Now see, last time I checked, dead things don't continue to do anything. So if you've died to sin, how can that be the mark of your life? How could that be possible? Okay. So it's this issue of death that we have to get worked out in our understanding of the gospel, okay? of what, ha- what has happened to us. Okay? And that's what follows in the discussion. Now, as we've discussed already from our study in Galatians, to die to something means to end the relationship with that thing. It's death. You remember, in Galatians 2.19, Paul said that he died to the law. And, and in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he demonstrates that all believers have died to the law. And he unpacks it, meaning that uh, we were, we're no longer subject to its demands. We have no obligation to the law as a legal system. And in the same way, our relationship to sin has ended through death. We've died to it so that we're no longer subject to its demands, though it continues to make demands on us. Perhaps you've noticed something in you makes demands of you, and you're not proud of it. You guys experience that? You're not proud of it. Some of the demands are ungodly. Some of the desires are ugly. Some of your appetites are shameful. And I'll bet none of you want to share them with us on the microphone. You already said you don't like to pray in a microphone. How would you like to confess the deepest, darkest, filthiest thoughts of your mind in a microphone? We're not proud of it. There's something in us that is disgusting. R.C. Sproul says, there is yet a corner of the soul that hates God. I won't ask anybody to confess that. Very true of us. We are, we still have a rebel that flows through our veins, right? Yeah. But you've died. You've died. You do not have to submit to those demands. You don't have to fulfill those lusts because dead things don't have obligations, okay? Well, that's great news, but how have we died to sin? Often doesn't feel that way. So Paul answers the question for us, and he's assuming uh, in his Roman audience, as I have to assume in mine, that some people don't know the answer, but he insists that we know it. So verse three through six, listen carefully to the language. He says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Maybe you don't know that. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, it's the third time, that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That is a, some glorious truth there, okay, about us, about what has happened to us if you're a believer. Now, so first, don't let the word baptism in verse 3, distract you. It's just the word picture that best illustrates what has happened to us spiritually when we, when we trusted in Christ for salvation. Okay? The water resembles the grave here in the passage. 
So when you go down into the water, it represents being buried. So what do you think it represents when you come out? Resurrection. That's right. Okay? Resurrection. Rising from the dead. Also, it's important to, I guess, point out that Paul is not speaking in physical terms. None of you were physically crucified, died, buried, and risen with Christ. Is that true? Okay, good. All right. But just because Paul is not referring to physical things doesn't mean that he's not being literal. Because he most certainly is. Paul is speaking literally about what has happened to the believer spiritually. Listen, if this didn't literally happen to you, none of the, the promises, none of the benefits can actually be true for you either. It's all, it's all in your imagination. We're just going to pretend that we died and rose and that we can live a life pleasing to God. How many of you guys want to play pretend with your, your life spiritually? It's crazy. Okay, this happened literally to me. It happened literally to you. You have died with Christ spiritually. And you have risen with him for a very beautiful purpose. Okay. So by way of regeneration, when the Holy Spirit took residence in us, Paul is saying our old man, our unregenerate self, that slave of sin was plunged into death with Jesus. He has suffered death. To what result? Verse 6, that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now real quick, the New King James says that the body of sin or that the body of sin might be done away with, the King James Version says that it might be destroyed. Now, both of those translations can work themselves out, unfortunately, in some people's lives, okay? Because it leads some, I believe, into a discouraging theology or, or idea about Christianity, which doesn't actually fit in the whole context of Paul's argument. You see, if you believe that the sin nature has been done away with in the sense that it's been eradicated, that it's been eradicated because you've exercised faith in Christ, it's going to lead to a disappointing experience. Okay? Some think, because of translations like these, that when they come to faith, all their challenges with sin will go away. How many have experienced that? But you realize many people have expected it. And so when you go into the Christian faith expecting from a theology like that, that my sin nature has been eradicated, that it no longer exists, if that's your expectation, you can be very, very disappointed, right? Because we all struggle, we all wrestle with our sin. We continue to. We found out quickly after we came to Christ. And so people have that expectation, they're disappointed, they're disillusioned, and many of them fall away. And the reason is, is they have not understood properly the gospel. You remember in the, the parable of the sower, and there's all of these different scenarios. And when Jesus explains it to the disciples, he says, there's one that did not understand the word. And they're the ones that are easily plucked away. And you see that in people. Okay? They didn't understand the gospel. And so they fall prey easily to the enemy, to the flesh, to the world, whatever. So we have to be careful that we keep the whole context in mind. To be done away with literally means to be rendered inoperative. It literally means to be powerless. Powerless. The body of sin, the slave of sin, has been rendered powerless or inoperative so that sin can no longer exercise dominion over you. Through death, 
You've been delivered from the power of sin. Not the presence of sin, mind you. The power of sin. Okay. Now, the sin nature can make demands of us, doesn't it? Everybody say, it does of me. I don't know about you. It makes demands of us, but it cannot rule over us. Death has ruined its power. We've died to sin. Okay? But not only were we crucified, dead and buried with Christ, the new regenerate man was raised from the dead with Christ. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. To what end? Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life or a new kind of life. Now, real quick, in in verse 5, Paul says united together. United together. Literally in the Greek, it means to be planted together. Planted together. Do you remember the, the parable that Jesus gives about the seed? That the seed must go into the ground and what must happen to it? It has to die. And if it, he says if it does not die, it remains alone. He, what he's saying is, is it won't bear fruit. Seeds have to go into the ground and germinate. And once they germinate and grow out of the soil, that's when they can bear fruit. So the seed has to go into the grave and die, just like the sinner does. And once the old man has perished, then he can be risen with Christ. And then he will bear fruit unto God. Even sevenfold, Jesus says. It's the same thing here. It's just explained in more theological terms. It's not a parable, but it's beautiful. We've been raised with Christ. And so because we've risen with him, we can live a new kind of life, a life unto God and to his will. So it's through death. The believers ended his relationship to sin and were free from its dominion, its rule, its reign over us. Because we've risen with Christ from the dead, now we can live for God, free. So these, these are the facts of redemption that Paul wants us to know because they're pertinent to walking in the Spirit. Okay? As we've said, they're true of every redeemed person without exception. Without exception. Do not doubt what the Scriptures have said about you. Do not doubt it. Okay? We should understand these facts, but there's more. Knowing the facts is essential, but it's not enough. Verse 11 Paul says, this is what's true about you. At least he's saying, this is, my, this is the divine declaration about you. Now, what do you have to do about it? He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So first thing that's very interesting here. This is the first imperative in the book of Romans. It's the first command. It's the first command. We've gone... Six and a half chapters in the book of Romans, and this is the first command that Paul has given his listeners. I think that's fascinating. I think it's very important because this is the first responsibility assigned to someone after they've come to faith. Yeah, that means that this should be immediately taught to new believers. It was not taught to me. It was not taught to me. Okay. New believers just getting started. They need to know the facts and they need to know what to do with them. So let's look closer at this. Paul says that we should reckon ourselves to be dead to sin 
and alive to God. The word reckon, as I told first service, this is usually what Texans and cowboys say. Okay, I reckon. All right. Well, that's why most modern translations have changed things up a little bit. They preferred the word consider or to count, to count. Paul is telling us that we must reckon these facts of redemption to be true for us, to be true for us. We have to, we might say, bank on them. We must count on their realities. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, whether you like it or not, this has happened to you. And you need to count on it. You need to bank on it. Just like a slave who has been set free must count on the fact that he's been set free and then be determined, be intentional to live as the free man that he is. He must be intentional. Now imagine being born a slave, being, growing up in slavery, and then suddenly you're emancipated. It probably comes with great rejoicing, but what do you know how to do? You know how to be a slave. So now what do you do? You do need to reckon on reality that you have been emancipated, that you're free. And I would encourage you to rejoice if, that, if you were a, well, you were a slave, just to something else. Coming out of slavery is a good thing, but it's a difficult thing. Coming out of the world as a sinner is a good thing, but it can be a difficult thing. How many guys found that out to be true when you came to Christ? Yeah, yeah, it's true. We don't have to obey the sin nature because we're no longer in slavery to it. We can live a new kind of life because Jesus has provided it for us. We're free. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. But, but now what? We can reckon it to be true. It is true. We've started a relationship with God. How do we live in freedom? Paul throws a a wrench into all this in verse 12. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead, to sin, alive to God. And then he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its less. Do not let it reign. It's another command, okay? So because of the facts, he's saying we have an obligation to forbid sin to rule over us, actually from within us. We have to forbid it. Sin is there. It's present with us. Its desires have not changed, but its rule over us has ended, so he says we should not obey it. In the same way, a former slave master who has lost his slave for whatever reason, he could make demands of his former slave, but what could the former slave say to him? Say it louder. He can say no. He can say good try but I ain't doing it. I'm free. I've been emancipated. Okay? I don't have to obey you. You can't make me obey you. I don't have to anymore. I'm a free man. So at, at my own peril, I gave an illustration from a cartoon last service. How many of you guys have seen Aladdin? Just be honest. I don't care if you've seen the new repackaged one. I'm talking about the old cartoon. Yeah. And the rest of you are lying. Sid. So you have this genie in a bottle, of course, and he's been in there for thousands and thousands of years. And Aladdin says, well, after I've, you know, I've, everything's done with my two first wishes, I'm going, my third wish will be to free you. And you know, he doesn't believe him, but at the end of the movie, it actually happens. He, he wishes that the genie would be free. And the symbol of the genie's enslavement to his duty is on his wrists. 
and you see the, the shackles as they were, they come off. And he celebrates. He's free. And then he tells Aladdin, he says, Aladdin, tell me to do something. And so Aladdin gives him a command, and he says, no. <laughs> that really is what Paul is telling us here. We've been emancipated from our slavery to sin, from sin within, the sin nature. And we now have an obligation when it spouts its demands on us to tell it, no, I will not. And we have a right to, by the blood of Christ, to say no. We are free from sin's mastery over us. And now we have an obligation to remain free. We should not let sin rule over us. So how do we do that? Verse 13, Paul says, and do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Presenting our members as instruments. I think as humans, at least our experience would, would bear this out, that our body and our various members, and we talk about our bodies, we mean our eyes, we mean our brain, uh, we mean our faculties, we mean what we are, okay? That they are going to be an instrument for something. They are going to be an instrument for something. They will be given in obedience to someone, whether it be for sin or it be for righteousness. Is that true? They will for something, okay? We will present our minds to something. We'll give our eyes to something. We will offer our bodies to something. We'll either offer our bodies in obedience to sin, which is very easy, or we will offer our bodies to God for righteous things. And there is absolutely no in-between. There's no in-between. As believers, if we are to live the righteous life that God desires, we have to be diligent and intentional at all times to offer ourselves to God as his instruments for righteousness. If we do not, we will be used by sin. That is our default. How many of you guys have noticed that? It is. It's easy to demonstrate. You know, when kings should have been at war, King David was at home watching porn, which led to adultery, and then it led to murder. He was not fulfilling God's command to cleanse the land. He was taking his ease. When Solomon should have been managing his father's kingdom, he was making unholy alliances through countless wives. When Peter should have been standing up for the truth of the gospel, he was influencing Gentile believers to keep the law. And Paul says that those who fail to support themselves or contribute to the whole, he says, are often gossips and busybodies. 2 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. So when people are not doing the work of the Lord, they're usually bickering about something, complaining about something, gossiping about someone. And from where I stand, they're occupying a seat in the church that could be filled by someone who's not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the work. That's just reality. We as humans, we need to watch out for inaction because when we're not on our guard, or rather when we're on our, at our ease, we're not on our guard, We've said that idle hands are the devil's workshop, and that would bear out in most people's lives, I think, very easily. Peter says to be sober, to be vigilant, to be awake and alert, that is, because our adversary, the devil, is looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Now, if you honestly believe that that was true, do you think you would be awake and attentive? 
Peter, I think, says this to us because in a roundabout way, it was said to him. You remember, Jesus said, went to Peter and said, hey, uh, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. How well would you sleep after that? Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, right? So Peter is not giving us a hypothetical. He is telling us the truth that maybe not Satan personally, but his minions, he's they are looking for someone to devour. They're looking for a Christian that's being idle, taking their ease so that they can devour you. Look, if the enemy doesn't devour you, the world will. And if the world doesn't, your flesh will. That's just reality. Okay? Sin in us is an opportunist. It will leverage anything, any circumstance, any situation to regain control in your life. I see it all the time in other people. I see it in myself. Okay? Sin takes advantage of idleness. It takes advantage of loneliness. I see that a lot. It takes advantage of self-pity and success, defeat and failure. Sin creeps into everything to corrupt it. So Peter, Paul, Jesus, they say, be on your guard and make sure that you're being intentional, diligent about who you present yourselves to. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do what? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations say your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you realize that uh, we just skipped over a number of chapters for Paul to get right back on track with what he was saying? From chapter 6 to chapter 12. A lot of theology in between. So in chapter 6, we have, we have about three imperatives right there, and then they vanish for another six chapters, and then we come back to chapter 12. It's pretty amazing, huh? Everything in between is, is that thing that people have more and more disdain for. It's called theology. But all of that theology in between is, is the skeleton, is the foundation of how all these other things can be true. We cannot skip over them. Amen? We need them. So in this passage in Romans 12, it's all about the body and the mind, offering our body and all of its members to God. And he says, you do that and you will be found in his service. You'll be found worshiping him with your life. And then if you give God the full attention of your mind, you will see his perfect will develop in your life. Yeah. The body and all its members, you guys, they must be led. They must be. And if they're not led by the Spirit as we rely upon him, by default, it will be led by the flesh, the world, and the devil. That's just the way things go in this world. Okay. And so this whole thing about the body being subject to the Spirit is what Paul's going to unpack in Romans chapter 7 and 8. He's going to talk about real struggles, and then he's going to talk about real victory in the Spirit. But it's all based upon the facts that we talked about this morning. So for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to get into all of that. So in closing, let me review the facts with you and what Paul has said, because I want to burn them into your mind Paul says, because we've been united with Christ in his death, we have died to sin, and therefore you are not subject to its passions. You are free. 
you are free. And being united with Christ in his resurrection, he says, we're, we're alive to God. You are alive to God. And therefore, you can live a new kind of life. You can live a righteous life. And then Paul says, this is what we must do with these facts. We must count on the fact that our death to sin is a reality. We must bank on it. You guys, you are actually free. You are actually free, like an emancipated slave. And then he says, we must bank on the fact that we're alive to God. We belong to him. We've been purchased with his blood, and therefore we can live for him. And then he says, this is how you live out the facts. Because you've been set free from sin, and now you belong to God, he says, you must, with all of your might, say no to sin and refuse its demands. And then your body and all of its members must be withheld from sin and its use. Must be withheld. And with that, we must offer all that we are to God for his purposes and our realization that we belong to him. Okay, we're free. So, if you're going to walk in the spirit with any success, Paul would say you have to know the facts of redemption. You have to reckon them to be true. And then you have to live according to them. You have to yield your life to those things. Then we're going to play with all those realities in chapter 7 and 8. And that's what I have for you this morning. Let's pray. Please stand up. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's, it's for us, through faith, to come to greater and greater realization of these things. And so, Lord, I pray that what we've talked about this morning, that would become a revelation to us. It's your revelation. You've said, about us, you've said this about us, and so it's true. And we need to believe it, and we need to walk in it. And so, Lord, I pray that more and more that these things would be etched into our mind, that we would be reminded of them, or we'd be diligent and intentional to live by them. And, Lord, I pray for the next couple weeks that we would learn more how to rely upon the Spirit who dwells within us. So, Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.